The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Monday, September 25th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca, and we have declared war on a nuclear nation. Well, North Korea's foreign minister says so. Trump claimed our leadership wouldn't be around much longer. And hence, at last, he declared a war on our country. The White House's official response to a nuclear enemy saying we're at war with them is, nah, we're just not buying it. We've not declared war on North Korea, uh, and frankly, the suggestion of that is absurd. Huh, what an interesting ontological conundrum. You might even say existential. You know, scholars like Barbara Tuckman have won prizes going back to past conflicts, World War I, Guns of August specifically, and unraveling the varied alliances and stratagems and tripwires, or methodically building an historical case that the complex interactions inevitably led down this path that seemed to the outsider so avoidable. I do not know if whoever decodes the Trump-Kim Jong-un spat will have achieved quite the same level of, let's say, Gordian knot detanglement. One maniac says, we got a nuke. And the other says, no, we really have a nuke. First maniac, you can't stop us. Second maniac, you gotta stop. If you don't stop, we're gonna kill you. First maniac, if you threaten to kill us, we won't stop. I'm not backing down, I'm ratcheting up. If you're ratcheting up, I can't back down. And there is no Pulitzer Prize at the end of this drama. The truly dangerous thing is that the tripwires, the landmines, are always going off in the Korean Peninsula. Literally, 1974, a North Korean infiltration tunnel is discovered. A U.S. investigative team sets off a tripwire. An American is killed. There are so many incidents like this. Maybe you don't realize there haven't been that many in recent years where people are actually dying. But since the end of the Korean War, it happened all the time. You probably heard of the USS Pueblo captured by North Korea. One sailor killed, the rest tortured. Did you know in 1976 there was the poplar tree incident? Ever hear of the poplar tree incident? Two U.S. soldiers in the DMZ attempt to trim a poplar tree. This wasn't a horticultural exercise. It got in the way of them seeing things. They were shot dead by North Koreans. Also, nine U.S. and South Korean soldiers injured. And the shootdowns, the various shootdowns, Chinooks here, aircraft there. Let me read an article from Time Magazine, 1977. It was exactly the kind of incident that could have triggered military alerts or worse on the volatile frontier between the two Koreas. With a burst of gunfire, North Korean forces downed a U.S. helicopter that had strayed across the demarcation line. Within minutes, three of the American crewmen lay dead, and the one survivor was taken prisoner. To ward off another Korean crisis, the White House moved quickly to defuse the situation created by the accidental incursion in North Korea's brutal response. And that's the thing. Past White Houses and Blue Houses, that's South Korea's White House, have always known we must defuse. It would be crazy not to. Incident can lead to conflagration or de-escalation. Now I ask you, what do you think Trump's going to choose? When was the last time Trump de-escalated anything except himself on the way down to declaring for president and denigrating Mexicans that day? Well, he also de-escalated the prestige of his office. That is true. But in general, guy's not a de-escalator. Also, his elevator doesn't go all the way to the top. And he gets pretty winded after a half round of golf. 
So not a lot of options with this guy. Private jet. Now I'm getting the whole private jet thing. All the private jets. On the show today, now when it comes to North Korea, Trump can't insult an NFL player his way out of that one, but on plenty of domestic issues, he can. Sports talk hot take as escape valve in the spiel. But first, I take you back to a day of slightly more elevated presidential discourse. And one of the guys who disgorged the discourse comes by to discuss. David Litt, presidential speechwriter, has every reason to title his book, Thanks, Obama. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphe. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. A famous president once promised a car in every garage and a chicken in every pot. Okay, I didn't really say that, but let's say he did because it's one of those phrases that has gained currency in the American psyche. Now, from a chicken in every pot to a salmon in every toilet is the journey sketched out by David Litt. He he was a speechwriter for Barack Obama. He wasn't the most prominent speechwriter, didn't get to write the most important speeches, but he was there and he was funny. And now he has a memoir. Thanks, Obama. My hopey, changey White House years. Hello, David. How are you? I'm good. How are you? T- tell us of these salmons and these toilets. Uh, this was, I think, about six months after I first started my White House job. I worked in the executive office building. So when most people say I work in the White House, what they really mean is I work next door yes. in this big, giant building. But it's nice. You get better digs in there. Oh, very nice. Yeah. Space. yeah, totally. I walked down this sort of historic spiral staircase, you know, imagining all the history that had taken place, opened the door to the men's room. Um, there was a Secret Service agent using the urinal, so I scooted over, opened the door to the stall, and that's when I found a full side of salmon without any bite marks, right? Cooked, not yeah. raw, yeah, sitting in the toilet bowl, just sitting, yeah. And I, do- I still to this day don't know why, but it's one of those moments where you realize what it means to work in the White House because you're immediately wondering what does this mean for America, mm-hmm. not just why is there the salmon here and and what would happen if I flushed, but much loftier questions yeah. like has a secret service agent gone rogue or you know is someone in the national security council really that inept um, and i and i don't know the answer to this day i don't know who put yeah. that salmon there sigmund freud once said a salmon in the toilet is just a salmon in the toilet but when you're in the white house there are certain places where you do have to read into it a little more yes. and it became a lay motif if you will in your book you come back to it again and again the salmon in the toilet to me it was the uh, how difficult it is to do your job without making a mistake. Because most of us think that what you really should be doing if you're in the White House day to day is being brilliant. But really so much of what makes a White House effective or ineffective is just basic competence. Can you do a decent job without screwing up in the most high stakes, high pressure environment imaginable? There's so much, such a theme, often an unstated, but every once in a while a stated theme of the book which kept striking, which I kept thinking of, was just how different this functional, dare I say, very good White House compares to the current White House. When you talk about the 
almost oppressive system of fact-checking speeches and then compare it with just the slapdash, half-assed nature of the White House now. And it's almost like you're working for two different, not just two different administrations, but two different institutions. Someone who's a speechwriter now and what you did. Yeah, I can't even imagine. So I started the book when it was the beginning of 2016. And then on November 7th, I remember thinking, A, we're all in real trouble. And B, I need to rewrite big portions of this book. And it was even little things that I wouldn't have expected. There was a part where I talk about the vetting process. So I had written, you know, if you were like some of my college classmates who ducked out of photos at parties so they could run for office one day without anything on their record, you'd probably pass the vet, you'd, you know, get into the White House. Right. If you enjoyed uh, tweeting about female anatomy or spinning records under the stage name DJ White Power, you probably would not. And then I looked at it and said, well, the tenses need to change on this one. Yeah. Um, and, and it was re- pretty remarkable to me to be like, oh, do you know, DJ White Power would probably be, a, you know, have a great White House job right now. So much of what you thought were rules were just norms and norms can be uh, can can be destroyed. So funny in the example you just gave, but serious yeah. in a lot of the other examples that we're living through today. And I think a lot of those norms started to break down, not just with Trump, but um, one of the things that I tried to write about was the way the Republican Party totally changed, where it, it was basically, you know, it wasn't that Trump came in and said, oh, I'm going to break all the rules. It was that Mitch McConnell had sort of politely and quietly broken the rules. And then Trump kind of took that and ran with it and said, I'm just going to do it loudly and right. in public. It also strikes me in the book that we know that Obama is funny, but the difference between funny, which he is, and a good sense of humor, he has an excellent sense of humor. He was a very good listener where he could he could intuit or and grasp, OK, this is what makes this joke really funny. I've only heard it once, but I get the point and I'm going to add to it. Yeah. And it was also he just had an ability to laugh at himself. I mean, one of the there was a a time when we had photoshopped a slide and in this photoshopped slide, he looked surprisingly like Adolf Hitler. Yeah. But one of one of the foreign policy writers said, is the joke of this picture that POTUS looks like Hitler? It was like, no, it is not. But uh, I'm with the other speechwriters, and I have to be the one to say, Mr. President, I'm sorry, we couldn't use that picture. You kind of look like Hitler in it. <laughs> and I have never seen President Obama laugh harder than he did in that moment. I mean, that was <laughs> he kicked his knees back. He's rolling back in the couch of the Oval Office and he was willing to enjoy it. It didn't take it as, a, as some sort of, uh, you know threat to his ego, where I feel like I can't imagine what would happen if you tried that with our current commander-in-chief. I think when the similarities to Hitler uh, go beyond just one glancing look at a photo, maybe it hits home a little more. Love It, who uh, is host Love It and Leave It, Love It or Leave It podcast, John Love It, he's also a really funny guy. Yeah. Was he like you in that you were allowed to embrace your humor and they'd go to him for humorous bits? Yeah, absolutely. So when I got to the White House in 2011, I think it was April 2011, uh, Lovett was the in-house funny person. Uh, but he left in November 2011 to go write comedy full time. Yeah. And so it was sort of by default, they were like, well, the no one, no one else even remotely fits that description. You know, I had some joke writing experience. So wow. they said, all right, by, <laughs> you're, our, you're our new token in-house funny person. And it can be helpful because... It's not like I was going to say, oh, I will write a better economic address than John Favreau or Cody Keenan. But I did have this one specific skill 
at least for DC, you know, what I had, had what in DC is a comedy background. <laughs> and you're also DC handsome. Oh, uh, thank you. That? Yeah, yes, yes. I, I, that's that's a great compliment <laughs> and a great insult <laughs> simultaneously. Um, you're also DC self-effacing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which is that is your brand. Yeah, <laughs> so you have yeah. to play into it. I, I guess that's a little bit right. So I I told the president I was working on a self-deprecating White House memoir, and he looked at me and without missing a beat said, "Huh." That seems like a contradiction. And I was <laughs> yeah. like, yeah, that's kind of fair. You know, it is uh, it is self-effacing for a book about yourself. Well, as you say, there are a lot of White House memoirs, and, but they're never about the low guy on the totem pole. And I would guess they're often written by the low guy on the totem pole, but that guy always elevates his status on the totem pole. So this is the first White House memoir where you really embraced. And by the way, we're making jokes. You wrote really important policy speeches. You had a hand in history, certainly. But this is the first one where a White House staffer is like, yeah, I was almost nothing in the White House. (laughs) Well, to me, that seemed important just because I was talking to a friend of mine who I worked with, and he had said, I read a ton of White House books when I started started on the Obama campaign. And you're reading all these books about what it's like to be right there next to the president during big moments in history. But we all start out as, you know, 20-somethings who are in way over our heads, extremely worried that we're going to screw up. And sometimes we do and sometimes we don't. And I wanted to write about that experience. And also it just felt liberating where because I didn't have to write about the moment when I was in the situation room being like, all right, let's get Bin Laden, sir, or whatever. <laughs> you know, I could write about the, the salmon in the toilet. I could yeah. write about the times I embarrassed myself in front of the president. And those were the stories that all of my friends liked hearing. They didn't like to hear about the speech that went really well. They liked hearing about the time I, you know, did something pretty dumb. Well, I want to ask you about the speech that went really well, because there are a bunch that didn't, uh, at least by your telling. But then you write the criminal justice reform speech. So what were the lessons you learned along the way to make that speech as good as it was? Well, I think one of the things that I finally did is I relaxed a little bit. And the other thing, too, was for a speech like that, it's one of those things where you get good at something and it it just makes it feel easy. What I did in that speech that made me feel so proud of it was that everything kind of came together where the policy points and the moral case and the stories of both the president and what we would call real people, people Mm -hmm. who are not in politics, they all kind of wove together, but it was seamless. You wouldn't have known it uh, unless you were dissecting the speech. So that speech was to the NAACP, and it was on an issue that was really important to him. And it was also probably on an issue, criminal justice reform, that's in the wheelhouse of Democrats. What parts of the speech are in there that were meant to persuade someone who wasn't already inside the church? The main issue was how do you speak to the people who say this is a moral issue and also the people who say this is a practical issue? Because a lot of conservatives said from a practical standpoint, we're spending $80 billion a year to keep people in prison. That's money that we could spend on lots of other stuff or we could cut people's taxes or whatever they want to do with that money. But why is the government spending all that money? A lot of people who had been personally affected by some of the inequalities in the criminal justice system the biggest issue is not financial, it's moral. It's why are we locking people up for, you know, 20 years because of, you know, nonviolent drug offenses? Yes. And it gets me to wonder a lot of things. But one is, can we really be persuaded? It seems that for a time, the words and the sentiment and a lot of what you did and a lot of what Obama was talking about were was persuading America. And then Trump comes along and blows it up and Maybe we even have a hard time remembering that we were persuaded in that direction at all. 
Well, uh, this is a line I think I kept in the book, but I, I think of a lot when I about presidential speeches is that presidents these days, they can't tell us what to think, but they can tell us what to think about. And Trump, while he is, in my opinion, not a great president, even worse person, he is very good at getting us to pay attention to the things that he wants us to pay attention to, even when those things aren't real. He can focus you on that and he can focus the, the media on that one thing. But but if it's true that what a president or a candidate can do is to give us the agenda to focus on, then maybe you can't really make the case that a really well-done, well-crafted, and logical argument isn't any better than just saying and asserting over and over again on the stump, NAFTA's bad, China's killing us, China's <laughs> killing us, China's killing us. So say it 12 times, now we're focused on it. That's just as good as a speech actually explaining why China's killing us. Well, one thing that presidential speech do that they don't get enough credit for is they're also internal documents for the government. Right. The Department of Justice could use the speech to say, okay, here's our priorities. So in addition to speeches as persuasive documents, there's not a lot of internal communications in the government. That's one big difference I found. I haven't worked in a big corporation, but now you have people on the National Security Council who see President Trump tweet something totally unhinged. And they say, well, the president said it. We have to figure out how is this policy now? Good. Hadn't thought about that. Okay. I want to ask you about one last thing. And it's a recent thing you wrote, I think, in time about Sean Spicer was trotted out and much fun and mirth, in quotes, was had with him at the Emmys. And you say, like a lot of people are saying, this essentially just normalizes a guy who is not only part of this administration, but at the center of some of its biggest lies. Is it uh, contradictory or hypocritical to, uh, on the one hand, say... You know, when Donald Trump said, I'm not playing, I'm not going to the correspondence dinner, he was criticized for that, right? But on the other hand, when Sean Spicer does engage in some sort of loosely defined bipartisan merriment, he's criticized or Colbert was criticized for that. Is that Are those two contradictory things? No, I think the reason they're not is because of the word bipartisan that you used. He wasn't there to make fun of the fact that he is conservative. That's totally fine. Um, he was there to make fun of the fact that he lied to America from the podium in the White House. And he sort of enjoyed the 15 minutes that came with being a very famous liar as opposed to thinking about the consequences of that. So there is a way Colbert, and it doesn't all come down to Colbert, but let's just use him as the stand-in for uh, what happened there at the Emmys. Do you think there was a way for Colbert to have used him that would have been acceptable? I think there certainly was. I don't know if it would have been acceptable to Sean Spicer. But the other thing that I wrote about is not just the sort of um, the merits of bringing him on, but also the missed opportunity, because I do think and I don't think this I, I am a 2008 Obama guy. I believe in bipartisanship, mm -hmm. but I think we also need to draw a line somewhere. And Trump is on the other side of that line. But the thing is, OK, so now Gary Cohn doesn't get to go to, you know, whatever fancy party he's usually invited to. But I, th I know those people who are inviting the parties and they're going to invite them to a party anyway right. and because they don't yeah. really they don't really they're not really true believers in democracy as much as they say they like hobnobbing with powerful people. Right. And I think that is that's not a good thing. Right. Yeah. That the again, it, not because Gary Cohn is part of a Republican administration, but because he's part of an administration this that administration. can't decide how they feel about part Nazis. Of a Republican right. administration. Well, yeah. and, and I think that is. That is an issue. And the idea that you're sort of a D.C. We talked about being D.C. good looking or, yeah. you know, D.C. funny. Yeah. The idea that you're D.C. famous just because you work in the White House is a little harmful. I mean, we we should be rewarding people not just for having a cool job title on their business card, but for actually doing a good job for the country. That's why you're supposed to be in Washington in the first place. David Litt is the author of Thanks, Obama, My Hopey Changey White House Years. David Litt, a speechwriter's memoir. 
And there's some redlining on the front page. <laughs> Thanks, David. Thank you very much. And now the spiel. In 1985, the USFL, an upstart and not entirely unsuccessful football league, made a decision, actually a pair of decisions, that not only consigned it to quirky historical footnote, but also solidified the NFL as the premier football league, and within 20 years, the premier cultural force in America. The USFL decided to switch its schedule from spring to fall in order to compete directly with the NFL, and at the same time, the USFL sued the NFL under antitrust law in federal court. Now, when I say the USFL decided this, in reality, the USFL was dragged into this decision. Some of the league's owners wanted to continue on, even if it meant that they'd have to be something of a little brother to the established NFL. But one owner, rich, boisterous, and headstrong, he would not have it. His name was Donald Trump, and he pushed his league into a fight, including a court fight. It was not a success. His lawsuit yielded $3 in damages, and the USFL folded. It did now have little brother status, as Kane can be said to have with Abel. Roughly 30 years later, Trump was rebuffed once again by the NFL when it was rejected as a potential buyer for the Buffalo Bills. Other owners of the NFL had long memories about what Trump tried to do to them, but Trump had a fallback plan, which we're all living under right now. This is Backdrop but not the only backdrop to Trump's comments at an Alabama rally where he gave a halting, tepid endorsement of establishment Republican Luther Strange for Senate. Strange's opponent, Roy Moore, is more of the mad dog with a bullstick mode that Trump prefers. And during the rally, in which Strange spoke for four minutes and Trump spoke for well over an hour, Trump gazed upon the crowd of rabid Alabama Crimson Tide fans and lit into NFL players who dared not stand during the national anthem. Wouldn't you love to see one of these NFL owners when somebody disrespects our flag to say, get that son of a bitch off the field right now, out, he's fired. He's fired! In addition to advocating the ouster of players with differing political views, Trump would go on to decry penalties designed to make the game less brutal which in his formulation are penalties ruining the game. Today, if you hit too hard, right? They hit too hard, 15 yards, throw him out of the game. It's easy to see why this would play well in Alabama, hotbed of college football, in which the players are essentially indentured servants. But the context for Trump's remarks goes beyond his own history, the state's history, or even his Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin's compelling statements that he made on several Sunday shows. And I don't understand why there's rules that when the Dallas Cowboys wanted to put stickers on their helmets out of respect for people there, they couldn't do it. But now the NFL is saying people should be able to decide what they want to do and disrespect the United States flag. Steve Mnuchin does not understand why the NFL enforces a rule against something for which there is a prohibition, but does not enforce a rule that doesn't exist in which there is not a prohibition. He does not understand that. 
He also probably doesn't understand why sometimes he wants to take a government jet on a romantic weekend, but he doesn't, and people criticize him. And then other times he wants to take a government jet on a romantic weekend, and he does, and people still criticize him. Which is it? Totally inconsistent. Mnuchin's arguments are based on his job description, which is toady up to the boss. Trump's arguments are based on his job execution, which is to say he is terrible at his job. Let's go to September 13th. Trump sides with Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer on DACA. That day's headline in Breitbart is Amnesty Don. That very day, Sarah Huckabee Sanders from the White House podium and Trump from his tweet deck both launch a Jerry Myad against Jamel Hill. She is here legally, by the way. September 22nd, Trump, having seen another iteration of Obama repeal wither and having endorsed a candidate who the crowd clearly does not like, hits upon a pressing issue of the day, NFL players protesting. And if Trump was just criticizing, that's one thing. But he called for their firing. Is he the president or is he Donnie from Queens, first time, long time on WFAN? Yeah, I say fire them all. Also, can we have a constitutional amendment on bat flipping? Trump knows what he's doing, actually. He's not doing it well. There are hundreds, literally hundreds of right-wing and sports radio talk show hosts who could press these buttons better than he can. But he is the president, which gives him that 50,000-watt clear channel reach into every American's brain. Trump's like an exotic animal, a horned lizard, whose behavior, say the ability to squirt blood out of his eyes, seems totally bizarre to us humans. But to anyone with even a cursory knowledge of the horned lizard, yeah, squirting blood out of his eyes, that's just what he does. Now, if a horned lizard were kept as a household pet or, say, elected president, that would be bizarre. But only given his standing as a horned lizard, he's just doing what a horned lizard does. He's just being as predictable and in keeping with character as his species can be. That is Trump with his outrageous, divisive, afactual, pandering statements. They're totally unbelievable, only they're 100% expected, just not from the person occupying the office of the president. Now, here is the one group I wonder about, the cheering throng. In the discussion of this bit of rabble-rousing so far, we've spent all our time on the rousing part. What about the rabble? How long does a Trump supporter say, well, I voted for him to improve my life, no progress on that front, I wanted some of his policies pursued, like an Obamacare repeal, a wall, an actual meaningful travel ban. He has been ineffective or incompetent there. It's not actually getting anything done. And on issues like immigration or maybe the debt ceiling, I at least want him to take a certain stance. He's taken the opposite stance. So I'm not getting anything that helps me. I'm not even having him be on the side of the issues that I want. There's no sign that he's doing anything effective. And on some key issues, he's betrayed me. Oh, wait, he's declaring a worthless opinion on something in the world that he can't possibly affect. And let's face it, that doesn't really affect me. Well, hell yeah, then. He's still my guy. For how long does the playbook work? Well, when legendary Alabama coach Bear Bryant led the Crimson Tide, they ran the wishbone offense on just about every play. It worked. It was simple and effective. At least Trump's got one part down. That's it for today's show. The gist was produced by Dan Schrader, who's up in arms about all these highlight players lethargically raising their cestas during the pre-highlight salute. 
Mary Wilson, just producer, applauds the race walkers for not only not taking a knee, but also keeping one foot on the ground at all times, like the founding fathers intended. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, applauds the kielbasa, a very important part of the Milwaukee Brewers sausage race, the kielbasa. God bless you on your commitment to God, country, and mouthfeel in that order. The gist, Donald Trump united Tom Brady, Rex Ryan, and Richard Sherman on their opinion of you. Now that is an accomplishment. Oomperu, dapperu, dupperu, and thanks for listening.